Good morning. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Hey, that's that was a great introduction, to be honest with you. Uh, almost as great as when Prentice came and preached at a Seattle church a few weeks back. I was so relieved I got to sit in the same seat that he was in um, and get to just enjoy being with my community while it's happening. Uh, if you don't know, I mean, the amount of you know work and thought and, and practice of doing this each week that he puts in, and you guys just have an amazing, amazing pastor who I'm so, so fortunate to call as a friend, and then getting to know Maria over the, the last little while and to celebrate them on their wedding day is such a gift. So really glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I will tell you this. The first time Prentice and I met, he didn't remember it, but it was not great. Like, not great at all. In fact, uh, I was interviewing for a job at a church that he and I used to both work at. Eventually, they hired me, but I was late to my interview, and so I worked at Seattle Pacific at the time. I would travel around, and I would do recruitment, and I didn't well, like, I always don't well understand the amount of time that it would take to get back from a ferry in the peninsula to the mainland and drive over to Bothell to meet him at a coffee shop, a little Starbucks, you might have heard of it, local establishment. And across the table is this young, buff, strapping man uh, who was about to interview me (laughs) for this role as a youth pastor, the role that he had had before. And I tell you what, I was late and it was terrible Every single ounce of that interview was terrible. And I would have, the last thing I would have imagined is that we would be here today having this conversation because I was like, that guy is probably really cool and like really established in ministry. And I'm this young guy who just really wants to get my foot in the door. Ironically, Prentice and I ended up kind of working at a lot of the different same places. And uh, over the years, I've come to learn, again, how great of a man that he is. And I wanted to show you a photo that I think just perfectly pictures how great of a man that he is. Uh, He's like, how in the heck and where did you find that photo? You see, the thing you have to understand is that true greatness is personified by a turtleneck. Um, If you want to know, yes, that's right. Yeah, what is it? Aim for the stars, land in the moon? No, I don't know about that. Uh, he here, this is, this is special. I'll let it speak for itself. I, I, I was wondering when I found this photo of Prentice, like, what was he going for? Like, what was he aiming at, right? Like, where, what was he thinking? And I, and I think it was probably like a Steve Jobs sort of look. Have you, you know what I'm saying? Like, the turtleneck, like, you want to be great? What you do is you, 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 you wear the turtleneck like, like, you're, like you're made for it, right? Just throw up the, the photo of Steve, you know? This is, this is personified greatness, Right? That's, I'm just saying, that's maybe what he was going for. Why would I bring this up? Why would I show you Prentice in a turtleneck? Because one, it's hilarious, um, and he deserves it. And if you don't give him a hard time, I will. Two, because we as a culture have this obsession with the idea of greatness. Let me just show you a few different ways. One of which is we look at someone like Steve Jobs, and our first thought, generally speaking, is like, how did they do it? Like, what does it take Like, what's the requirement to be someone who is kind of other or set apart? We love our Malcolm Gladwell books, and we're like, if I only put in 10,000 hours at this thing, then I will become great like Steve or Bill Gates or whomever it is that we personify as someone that is great. We love the distinction of someone who seems to be kind of otherworldly or or beyond human, right? We think about like a Michael Phelps or someone and we're like, oh, this person got 10 gold medals. How did they do it? What did it require? 
What does greatness look like? What does it require? We fixate on this. I think culturally it's kind of a a pathology. We don't even realize that it's happening within us. An example is someone asks you how you're doing. One of your defaults might be you're, oh, I'm great. Oh, I'm great. No, you're not. Generally speaking, most of us are not residing in this place where we feel so encouraged all the time. But we have this push and this pull and this desire to be a certain way that everything is uh, it's good, not only good, but that we are impervious, right, to vulnerability, or we are standing apart, we are set apart in a way. We love movies. We fixate on movies where there's the kind of rise from mediocrity to greatness. Anybody see A Star is Born? Anybody love that movie? Right, Lady Gaga makes it, right? She did the thing that got her to that place, and we're, sorry, spoiler alert, I don't know if you've seen it. You've had a year, it's fine. Um, or, you know, my, my favorite ones are the courtroom dramas, right, where someone is wrongfully accused, and, it, and in the courtroom, there's this great performance by the amazing litigator, the lawyer who stands on behalf of justice and, and, and gets the person either freed or that person speaks up for themselves, and they represent themselves in such a way that they are found freedom from being locked up or in shackles or in a place of injustice. I share all of this with you because I think we as a culture are fixated on the idea of greatness. But I think the thing that's interesting is we often don't count the cost for what that means for ourselves. Often, in our pursuit of greatness, whether we're politicizing greatness, right, we're using it as some term or something, right, that would be such a way to present to the world that this is, this is we will be great. We, we do that at the expense of other people, right? We, we, we support systems and causes and, and structures that perpetuate injustice or lack humility or lack mercy. We become people who don't actually embody the greatness that God talks about in the scriptures because we're people who very much want to be great in a way that is at the cost of others. How we make money, how we spend money, how we succeed, How we present ourselves in the world, you know, your best self on Instagram to the world. Irrespective of the thought that though I might find the gratification of the likes and the clicks, what does that do to somebody else's psyche? Being a people who are so determined to be different and other at the expense of whom? Is it at the expense of humility? Is it the expense of kindness? What cost do we end up paying and who pays it? for us. So I want to use a setting in the scriptures that is a courtroom. There's a passage in scripture uh, from the book of Micah, and it's in chapter six. And I'll talk a bit more about the courtroom setting and and what does it mean for greatness. But I just want to, before I do that, I want to, I want to pray. And I want to set the stage by walking through the scriptures and see the different ways that God defines greatness, and then talk about what it might be that this cliche, right? This word, this thing that almost has no meaningful value. How God would re-endow it with power in a way that is of God and is not just power in a way that is unjust and is not great whatsoever. So if you would, please pray with me and then I'm gonna jump into the scriptures. God, thank you again for me getting to be here. I'm so thankful for Prentice's prayers, uh, for the incredible community that's here and that I get to come and be a part of their life together this morning. Would you move in this place? God, I um, don't want to present a talk. I want you to speak with people this morning, God. I want them to hear you. 
I want you to speak into the deep places, God, where things are um, either great or not in everybody's relationship here with you. And, and, and what is missing in that? What, what, what is happening inside of us, God? May we be able to lay those burdens down. And may you take us up. May you speak to each and every single one of us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our midst. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there's a variety of places that within the Christian tradition we've thrown the term great on top of, right? Throughout the scriptures, there's these commands, there's these uh, different things that we've labeled in such a way. The scriptures don't label them in that way, but I think they're really important for us to walk through to understand the context of, of how is it that God defines greatness? What does that look like uh, in, you know, in respect, in concert with, and perhaps uh, against the ways that we as a culture and as people define those? And so there's five of them that I want to look at in particular. Before I do so, I, I sought to pray this way, but I really hope that this is uh, an unveiling of something that you've always known has always been there. Uh, re- um, Ephesians chapter 1 puts it like this. Ephesians 1, and this is Paul speaking about his desire for the church in Ephesus and within the region. He says the following. He says in verse 17, I keep asking that my God, or that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Anything that is of great value in our world is going to be something that pulls us into closeness and intimacy with God. There's a story where Jesus is interacting with, his, uh, with some of the religious leaders. And, you know, they said that we've done this and we've done that. And he says, I didn't really know you. And the base level thing is an intimacy with God, like is intimacy with the one who is great. And the way that we come to understand that is through that person, Jesus himself, revealing himself to us. And so again, these are not ideas. If these are merely ideas and information I'm giving you, I am not helping you this morning. This is a chance for us to be transformed by, as this passage says, the revelation, right? The, the word in Greek is apoupsis, uh, huh? There you go. That's a, that's a hard one to get to roll off. And the idea is that it's like an uncovering. It's like a blanket. Like if you're kids and you're playing under a blanket and you, you pull it up and it's like they were there the whole time. Oh, there you are. Right? I want you to understand and know in all of this revelation from the scriptures that this is God revealing God's self to you. That you would be in close, intimate relationship with God and be his representation. Be God's representation in the world. So here's the first one. The five things that come to mind in the scriptures as revealed as great. The first is the great affirmation. If you've ever read Matthew chapter 3, it's when Jesus gets baptized. And what happens? The skies open up. A dove descends. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in this moment. And it says, you are my son. This is to Jesus. And I would say that this is a a declaration of greatness to us as well. That God looks upon us as also sons and daughters, right? As people of God. Says, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The invitation from God is that we would understand first and foremost that he affirms us in love. That we are created to be loved just as Jesus is. The second is the great commission. 
And many, again, this is the scripture doesn't call itself the great commission, but the idea is that as we know whom we are, that we would go from that place. We wouldn't just sit here in pews on a Sunday and feel good about it and then go out for the other 167 hours a week and be just fine, but that we would be people who go and make disciples like we have been made. And that as we go, we would teach them to obey everything that God has command, immersing them, baptizing them into the full life of Jesus. So anything that you receive this morning that is great must be shared. The third that comes to mind is the great commandment, right? So Jesus is approached by a religious leader who says, hey, which of all of the rules, all the things in the law is great in your eyes? And what does he say? Love God and come on now. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the first is a statement of identity. The second is a statement of sending. The third is a statement of how you will go, right? Or what you will do as you go. And then the fourth is a requirement. And that brings us back to Micah 6. And before, I want to make a distinction here. What's the difference between commandments and requirements? A commandment in a general sense as defined by the dictionary as well as if you look throughout the scriptures, a commandment, a great commandment is a what? Like if you go out and you do anything in Jesus' name as his representative, the one thing that I hope that will happen is that you will love. Why? Because the scripture says that without it, you're a banging gong or a clanging cymbal. Anything that might happen, whether you raise the dead or you speak prophetically or whatever happens in your world, it will not be very great if it's not including love. But the requirement then is within that love, how do you love? How do you love? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn to Micah 6. So uh, you can follow along on the screen or if you brought a Bible, uh, whatever works for you to thrive in interacting with God in this moment, um, please be wherever you're most present. That's, that's my hope this morning. So here's what it says in Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go along and kind of highlight some things throughout these eight verses and then land on the requirement, and then we'll go from there. Here's what it says. Listen to what the Lord says. Okay, chapter or verse 1 here. Listen. This would have cued the hearers, this prophecy would have cued the hearers because that word listen is one of the most important words in the Old Testament. The uh, Hebrew people, the the Israelites, those who uh, were the followers of Yahweh, the Lord, uh, the Lord our God, right, who, uh, you know, came and saved them and brought them out of captivity. Him saying here as a revelation is so important because their most kind of known commandment was the Shema, which the Shema literally means here. So here, O Israel, the Lord your God says Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's from Deuteronomy 6. So what it's saying is listen. Please listen to this other very important thing. And this is also a third time in the book of Micah that the prophet Micah says, listen. And each time he says listen, it's, it's basically another really important argument that's so, it's meant to be said. And here's what he says. Listen up. God is talking. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord, Yahweh, has a case against his people. He is lodging a case against Israel. So what's happening here? 
You're like, ooh, mountains. We go to Bethany. This sounds good. I can get into this. Come on, that's a joke. You guys, you, like, you all like to hike, right? Isn't that a Bethany thing? That's like Bethany Green Lake. It's okay. It's fine. Micah of Morsheth is one of the only prophets in the Old Testament who is named in another prophetic book. And what he's doing here is he's starting a legal case against Israel. This is a common thing throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, In Hosea, there's a a very similar one in chapter 4. But the idea is that Micah, whose name means who is like Yahweh, is asking the people in his book, who of you are like Yahweh? He's asking them in his namesake what they are doing and would the mountains testify? You see, the, the, the idea of, in this passage, it's really fascinating, the everlasting foundations. That was a, uh, a synonym for mountains in the Old Testament. He's basically saying here that there is a judicial case that God is making to his people who follow him. So this is a message to people who are following Yahweh, who are following Jesus today, right? The ones who are following God, our Trinitarian loving God. If you are someone who is, in fact, doing so, what would the mountains testify about you? What would the onlooking jury say about your life? And in this case, Micah is gearing up because he knows he's received a revelation from God that he is sharing with them. What would be said about the way that they are living as people into the great requirement that he has established for them? Basically, simply put, they are living in indiscretion. They are not living into the life that God has established for them in the covenant. Here is what uh, the scripture says as it goes on in verse 3. It says, my people, this is God speaking to the Israelites, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. He's basically saying, contend for yourself. Defend yourself. What have I done to you? God is asking, what have I done to you to get us into this place? How did we get here? I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. Also, Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You see, what's happening here in these verses is that God is giving a testimony of how faithful God has been, how God has lived into the requirement that he is asking of them, that God is living into what it is that he's about to ask them again to do. You see, the thing that's incredible to me about God, and I want to say this, is that whenever you look at the scriptures, anything that God is asking of you, God has first done himself. God's own self has gone and been something and then says, will you be it with me? And he's telling a story here. God is saying, hey, remember when you were in captivity, you were actually enslaved. I brought you up out of slavery. Systemically, you were culturally enslaved by this power that was against you, by this power that worshiped other gods. I freed you. And then he talks about Moses and uh, Aaron and and Miriam. Miriam's the name of my daughter, by the way. It's always fun to say this. Uh, But he's talking about how they, like, Personally, he got down on a personal level and, and led them. God sent people to lead them. He gave them revelation in numbers through Balaam, this sorcerer who was going to go harm them. And yet God used him to bring them freedom. He's telling a story about all the ways that God did what he requires of you. So what then does God require? 
says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with mountains of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? These are rhetorical questions that God is asking. Like, do you think that God is going to be pleased with your most fine gift that you can give? With your offering, with your tithe, with, with whatever it is, God, I'll serve you all my life. I'll do it. If you give me that job, if you give me the means, I will serve you. I'll give you, if I live greatly, I'll do it for you. Or he uses a hyperbole with 10,000 rams. Nobody had all of this to give. So it's kind of like with whatever you think is great in your life and it's the greatest thing that you have to give, will you just come before God and say, here you go, it's the best I've got. Is that what the Lord requires of us? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here it is, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal. This is the answer. What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Right? Besides all the greatness that you would pursue in your life, besides all the greatness that you would offer to God, what is actually great in God's eyes? Besides a world looking on and seeing you and I as great, what is great in God's eyes? He has shown you, immortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know about you, but I have a feeling that the people looking on at the church right now, ourselves included, would go, you know what? The church in 2019 in America, in Seattle, in West Seattle, in South Lake Union, where I lead a church community, wherever we are, man, they are so humble, they are so kind, and they are just. Just the other day, I was on Twitter. Oh, Lord, sometimes you go down a rabbit hole on Twitter. And I was like, you know what? This is the place to find people acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbling with God. And it was even worse because the number one trending topic in America was a pastor who had a sex tape released. Yep. So nothing, again, it's not like, oh, that guy out there. It's like... We are our brother's keeper, and what in the world are we doing? And what would people say about the way that we vote, the way that we um, represent Christ in our relationships with our coworkers and with our family and with our friends, with our onlooking world, with the way that we pursue justice or don't at all, the way that we speak up or are silent? Is it what the Lord requires of us that is making our fellow Americans, our fellow world, our fellow, uh, our just people, general, in the world look on and go, man, the one who is in them is greater than the one that is in the world. That is not what is often happening. I think there's a big question, and that's why there's a crisis in evangelicalism. That's why there's a crisis. People are leaving the church in droves. is because they do not see that we are embodying what God requires. They do not see the justice. They do not see the mercy. They do not see the walking humbly with God. So I want to talk about what those might mean. What does it mean then to be people who do what God requires? What would it mean to be people of justice? 
Well, I just want to, I want to say this for starters, as someone who is on the journey with you, as someone who all the time is stepping in the mud of mistakes when it comes to trying to be a person who represents biblical justice. I want to say something that I hope represents Christ well, that is um, on behalf of really critiquing our own tradition, and that's this. Any gospel that doesn't include justice as a part of it, if we want to talk about a portrait or a representation, a representing of God, right, as, as, the, as your series is going through, any gospel that doesn't include justice is not good news. Anyone who would tell you that social justice is not a part of the gospel, right, they'd say, oh, that's just some cause, doesn't have the whole gospel in mind. And I would say from my experience and my failures and my learnings, one as a white male standing up here, two as someone who all the time doesn't even realize the privilege that I have and the ways that I operate in the world, I would have to tell you that nobody becomes a person of justice by accident. We have to do our work. And we cannot ask people who are on the margins or, you know, friends, whatever place it is that justice is required, we can't ask those on the underside of justice to do the work for us. That's our responsibility. That's our invitation. And our world is looking on. Put another way, if those of us who are in a seat of privilege or in a, in a, in a space of having in ways that others are in need, right? Others are a place of what the fruits of justice would look like and others are in a space of injustice. We have to remember that for us at times, and this may be convicting, and I'm sorry, Prentice, if you know I get you in trouble or whatever, but for those of us who are... Um, privileged, I would say that sometimes justice feels like oppression. Because what it means is that we have to give up something that other people would be loved well, right? We have to reconsider where we shop and what we do and how we represent ourselves as Christ in the world that others might be loved. Put another way, Leslie Newbegin, um, who's a missionary in India, uh, who had amazing, amazing thoughts about how culture and collides with justice, said the following, the church cannot accept as its role, simply the winning of individuals to a Christian discipleship, which concerns only the private aspects of life. To be faithful to a message regarding God's rule over all things, the church has to claim the high ground of public truth. My friends, justice is not an idea or a social cause. Justice is embodied within us or it is not. And our friends in our world need us to be people of justice because that's who Jesus is. And that's what the Lord requires of us, that our love actually has a testimony attached to it. That it actually can stand the trial, the onlooking trial that is, are these people salt and light in the world? Are they hope? Are they inviting us to more? Or are they just more of the same? God, help us. God, help Help me, because it's really easy for me to stand up here and talk about this, and it's another thing for me to go out from here and live justly in the world, to be a person of justice. But I think that's what God requires of us, that our love would be substantiated, that our love would matter. Secondly, this passage calls us to mercy. What is mercy? To love it. Um, a few years back, I read through the Bible in the ESV, and which is not my jam, it's fine. Uh, but when I read through it in the ESV, I was like, this is nauseating how many times they say steadfast love in here. Over and over and over and over again. It's the word has said, 
which is essentially used 245 times in the Bible. It's used a ton in the prophets. And it's used to, to showcase a God who is merciful. And what the, is meant by merciful is that not only is it who God is, but it's required of us to be people who love the steadfast consistency of being a presence that brings relief in the world. That we would be people who love mercy. Right? I just heard a stat the other day that 40% of people would say that they are more anxious than they were a year ago. 40% of thousands of people polled would say, you know what? Things are getting way more anxious. And what would it look like to be a people who live and operate and move in the world, loving the favor that God gives us, loving the steadfast love that God gives us that we can mercifully give it away? There's a passage where Jesus says, what is, uh, God requires, um, less requires sacrifice, uh, but he wants us to love mercy, right? What would it mean for us to be a people who desire mercy over sacrifice, who aren't just barely making it, but can be people who want to be a breath of fresh air, want to be a stream of ever-living water for our neighbors and for our family. I know some of you fought with your spouse on the drive here. I went on a date last night, and my wife and I got in a lively discussion. And we spent a lot of money on a babysitter for it. I did not love mercy in that conversation. I was like, yeah, I'm right, you're wrong, here's what we gotta do. The point is, what would it mean to be people who love the steadfast love that loves regardless of what the world is doing around us, regardless of what the church is doing, regardless of people, places, and things not going circumstantially as we hope they would? But only if it were so easy, right? What undergirds all of that? What undergirds our desire to be people who would do justice and and love mercy, I think is that we would walk humbly with God. That we would understand who we actually are. You know, this is the first time in the scriptures that the word humbly is used. And it takes a while to get there. But I think sometimes to become someone of humility, you have to be humiliated. We actually have to look in the mirror and go, oh man, things are not what I thought they were. And not that God, it's not shame. There's a difference between shame and humiliation. Please understand that. There's no shame. There's no condemnation. There is no separation from God's love for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, that's not there. But humility, hummus, that we would understand that we are people who have come from the dirt and to the dirt we will return. That we are people who are in need of a God who loves us, a God that saves us, a God that empowers us, a God that equips us, a God that sends us, a God that affirms us, a God that loves us, a God that commands that we would be people who love and requires that of us is that we would first receive the humble truth that we are people who need to not be so self-centered but that we find life by abiding in him and that apart from Christ we can do nothing yeah, yeah, well, I got this, I got this. No, 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 nothing. Just as Jesus himself was humble enough to understand that apart from God, he could do nothing, I think we could too. And I think these requirements are actually gifts for us to understand that we are not just saved from something, but that we are saved into something. That we are bond servants of Christ, as Ephesians would say, that we are people who are in him that Others would be freed and be invited into adoption as sons and daughters, as children, as people of God. 
What would it mean for us to be people who live in greatness as Jesus defined it? I want to finish with this because I think it's one thing for me to tell you these things that the scripture says. It's another thing for me to show them to you. And um, there's a passage that Jesus, uh, and we'll call it the great release. We'll call it the final great thing here that we're talking about today. Is that it's one thing for Jesus to say this is what was required of you. And it's another thing for him to show us. And so if you would, again, on the screen, Matthew 20, um, I want to show you a conversation that I think exemplifies Jesus being a person of justice, Jesus being a person who walked humbly, and Jesus being someone who loved mercy um, and, and, and took our definition of greatness, kind of usually our imperial, you know, uh, our, our way that is in many ways about power, and self-emptied himself, as the scriptures tell us in Philippians 2, who got down under that we would be lifted up into relationship. So Jesus resets uh, the perception of a few folks. And so um, as I read this scripture, I'm a quick highlight it out. You can invite the band to come back up. Um, I just want to finish here. It says this in Matthew 20. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he said. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So picture this. Jesus is with his disciples. James and John's mom, the sons of thunder, right? She uses the approach that her sons have. She just goes straight up to him and is like, hey, these other scrubs over here, like I don't want them to have the best seats in the kingdom, but I tell you who I want to. I want my sons to sit at your right hand and your left. I want them to be great in the new heavens and the new earth. I want them to be the people who are most close to you. I want them to take the spots that, that you've said you kind of have some close disciples, but I want them to for sure have it. So she comes trying to cling and grasp unjustly at the expense of others, lacking humility, lacking mercy. She comes to them and asks this, And Jesus responds, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Jesus asked this question of us. If we want to experience things in this world that we feel like are, oh my God, that was amazing. Thank you so much, God. I was a part of something that had purpose, that mattered, that I loved. Oh God, thank you. It was great. Jesus tells James and John's mother, What it's going to require is that you would be someone who, like me, lays your life down. We can, they answered. They can drink this cup, they said. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. It severed relationship. Their lack of humility severed relationship. And yet Jesus, in his humility, said, I I can't even give that to you. I have to talk to my Father. I have to be with God. And I can reveal things only from that place. Verse 24, when the two heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers again. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give 
his life as a ransom for many. My friends, Jesus is inviting us to mercy, to not be like the rulers of the Gentiles or the rulers of our country or our world or our cities, not to be like people who go, I'm going to come in power, but to be people who lay down our life as servants, who give life that others might find it. To be people of humility. Jesus said, not so with you. We will not be like that. That's not who we are. We are people of Jesus who gave his life. And people of justice, that we would serve and give life as a ransom, that others would find it. My friends, today, may you ask God what it is that he has for you that is great. And I have a feeling that it's going to have a lot to do with those requirements and the love that is embodied as a result. Please pray with me. Jesus, Spirit, Father, God, you are one, and we want to hear you today. So I just give a second here, God, for whatever it is that you have that embodies your greatness, a greatness that came to give life, that was only raised up in humility and in mercy and in justice. God, may you keep us in you in that posture. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for meeting with us in your scriptures. God, would you transform us that we would be people who see a new way forward that is about what it is that you have for us that presents you in a new way that gives life and doesn't take it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.